I'm going to change to our scheduled programming. I'd ask you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John 1 and not Luke 5 as it's printed in your bulletin. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 886. We take very seriously the importance of, of feeding our people from the pulpit. And because of that, we plan out themes six months in advance and specific texts three months in advance or so. And from time to time, I need to remember that we are led by the Spirit and not by my Excel spreadsheet. And that's why this week we're taking a slightly a different tack than, than planned. As I was thinking this week and as I sent you all the email about our, our third service coming up in, in the fall, this text from last week continued to weigh heavily on my heart. And I'm always saying, oh, there's so much more we could say. Well, this week we're going to say it. Uh, we're going to say all that could have been said last week. Uh, this week, focusing in not on Simon Peter, but on Andrew. So, let me read uh, First jo- uh, John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for this opportunity we have to spend just a few moments in your word. And Lord, as we so often are reminded that we, we don't need the opinion of man. We don't need even the, the diligence or, or study of a, a broken sinner. We need words of life and words of grace that come from your lips to our hearts. So come and rule and overrule in this time that we might hear from you, we ask in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Amen. Please. I wonder how many of you know what it's like to be known solely because of your connection to someone else. So people might know who you are, but only because of the way that you're connected to somebody else. So I remember, for example, when I went to school, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the middle child, which explains a number of my issues, and uh, I have a, a sister who's two years older than me, and so when I went to school, uh, the teachers knew this sweet, conscientious girl, and they said, oh, you must be Sarah's brother. And then in the coming months, they were deeply disappointed to find out that it was not as sweet or as conscientious as as she is. Or perhaps another relative. Uh, My grandfather uh, came to Christ in his late 40s and then after that became a pastor. And he was a wild man before he became a Christian. And he was a wild man after he became a Christian. And he preached the grace of Jesus Christ with power and passion. He's probably the most charismatic man that I've ever met personally, and so whenever we're anywhere near that region where he pastored, people will say, oh, you're Kenny's boy. 
And I'm known because I'm Kenny's boy. Um, sometimes here at the church, people will know Rosie as James's wife. But when we go to the gym together, I'm known as Rosie's husband. These times where you are known, but solely because of your connection to somebody else. I wonder if you have moments or seasons in your life like that. One person who, who certainly understood what this is like is found in the pages of John chapter 1, and it's Andrew. Whenever the relationship between Andrew and his brother Peter is referenced, Andrew is always called Peter's brother. It's never the other way around. In fact, sometimes when Andrew is mentioned and Peter isn't even on the scene, the scripture writers will add Andrew, Peter's brother. As if this is where he gathers his meaning or significance. It's almost as if people said, Andrew, who the heck is Andrew? Oh, Peter's brother. Okay, now we know who it is that, that you're talking about. Even now, as I reflect, you know, how, how, how much do you know about Andrew? I didn't know much anything about Andrew until I had studied it, I studied it this week. But it turns out that this little known figure has, has a lot to teach us. And a lot, particularly in this season, as we think about adding a third service this fall. So let's note a couple of things about him. The first thing I want us to see is really that Andrew is, he really is an ordinary guy. Andrew is a very ordinary guy. His name appears a dozen or so times throughout the pages of the New Testament. Uh, typically, as part of a group, they'll list all the disciples and they'll include Andrew's name in that. If not listed in a the group, then sometimes just as an incidental detail. Ordinarily, Andrew is left very much in the background. Here are some of the things we do know, though. First of all, he's got a great name. The name Andrew is a Greek word and it means manly good a name is that? Uh, the only name I think is better is, is our own Butch Hardman. You know? It's like the only more name that's more masculine than Andrew. Butch Hardman. Great name for a pastor. Great name for an apostle here. And as we'll find out, an appropriate name too. Because Andrew has this tenderness and this strength. He has this compassion and this stability that should be a mark of, of Christ-like manliness. We also know where Andrew lived. He grew up in a a small fishing village in northern Galilee called Bethsaida. Literally, it means house of fishing. And he later relocated to the larger city of Capernaum, which is not far from his hometown. And this is an important site for him to be at because it's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and at the intersection of uh, several important trading routes. And so it was an important or a strategic place for him to set up his his fishing business with uh, his brother. He is an ordinary fisherman who gets up early and works with his hands. He sets sails, he catches fish, he mends nets, he goes to bed tired, and he gets up and he does it all again. It's a very undramatic lifestyle. We know who he is, uh, some good friends in James and John. Peter and Andrew are, are good friends with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We know that they worked alongside each other as fishermen in Capernaum. We also know that when they became disciples, the four of them formed a a close-knit group together. But even in this group, Andrew is is the quiet one, or Andrew is the one who will be overlooked. 
It's impossible to overlook Peter. He tends to be impetuous and he speaks before he thinks. One pastor calls him the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. I just love that description of Peter. But do you remember James and John? Do you remember the nickname that Jesus gave to them? He called them the sons of thunder. Such was their tendency to be brash. Such was their tendency to speak without thinking. Their tendency to be reckless. Remember the argument James and John have about which of them will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We don't get anything like that when it comes to Andrew. He's not like Peter. He's not like James. He's not like John. He's, he's quiet. He's solid. He's faithful. Even as a disciple, we never hear of him preaching to some great crowd. He doesn't write any of the letters in the New Testament. He's never in the limelight. He's never the center of attention. He's an ordinary fisherman. He's an average Joe. He's your man on the street. He's your everyday citizen. As so often the case with biblical characters, everything about him drips with, with normalcy. And yet, and yet, we can go on to see in the scriptures that Andrew, this ordinary guy in the second place, has just an extraordinary impact. An ordinary man with an extraordinary impact. And do you know why? I love this. I think this is so cool. I've been telling everyone about it this week. So if you ran into me this week, you've heard the snippet of the sermon already. Why did Andrew have such a significant impact in the pages of the New Testament? We've mentioned earlier that his name appears a dozen times or so, and typically in a list or as an incidental detail. He's ordinarily in the background. He never takes the limelight. But there are three occasions in the scriptures where he comes to the fore. Three times in the scriptures when he really contributes to the narrative that's being told. The first of these times is here in John chapter 1. Think back to all we spoke about last week. Uh, Andrew is standing there with John the disciple and with John the Baptist who has his camel's hair coat on and he's holding his pot of honey. And John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so Andrew goes after Christ and they have this amazing encounter with him that takes place at exactly 4 p.m. And Andrew is changed by this experience of Jesus. And what's the very first thing that he does? He goes home, he finds his brother Peter, and he brings Peter to Jesus. Second time Andrew comes to the fore is in John chapter 6. This time Jesus is surrounded by a great crowd, some 5,000 people. And Jesus has been preaching and he's been preaching and he's been preaching. And the day has gone on and he's preached all the way through dinner. And suddenly they realize, oh, the, the crowd doesn't have any food. And we can't send them home hungry. What is it that we should do? And Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, well, come on, guys, you know, let's brainstorm here. Give me some solutions. Disciples wring their hands, look at each other and think, we don't have enough money to feed these people. And even if we did, the nearest stores are miles away. I have no idea what it is we can do. Then Andrew sees a wee boy with five loaves and two fish. What does he do? He brings the wee boy to Jesus. 
Third time in the scriptures that Andrew comes to the fore. It's in John chapter 12. Interesting that all these at times are recorded in the gospel of John. John obviously is is making a point for us. Here in John chapter 12 is when uh, this group of Greeks come seeking Jesus. And it's an interesting time that they come because it's in the middle of the Jewish feast of Passover. And they are Gentiles and they don't have the same full access to the temple. And so uh, they come to Philip and they say uh, to Philip, uh, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip doesn't really know what to do, so he goes and talks to Andrew. And what does Andrew do? He brings the Greeks to Jesus. He brings his brother to Jesus. He brings a b-boy to Jesus. He brings these Greeks to Jesus. The only thing we ever hear Andrew doing is bringing people to Jesus. That's all he does. Included in a few lists, and then bringing people to Jesus. That's all that we know about him. That's all that he ever does. And through these three uh, narratives, through these three historical accounts, we see the extraordinary impact that Andrew has upon the church. First of all, in bringing his brother Peter to Jesus in John 1. We know that Peter would would grow and develop into this amazing uh, man of God who would write some of the scriptures that we have today, who would be uh, central to the growth of the early church, who would preach on Pentecost one sermon that brought 3,000 people to Christ. And all the fruit of that ministry is only possible because of the normal faithfulness of Andrew. Extraordinary faithfulness coming through, extraordinary impact coming through a, a quiet faithfulness. In John 6, it's it's the same way. These 5,000 people go home, not just with their bellies filled, but with their souls filled as well. And this account is now recorded for us and has been preached again and again and again and is well known to all those who have been through Sunday school, whatever the denomination. Andrew's quiet faithfulness leads to one of the most well-known miracles of Christ that has had an incredible impact, not just on those who were there on that day, but ever on since history. Extraordinary impact coming through a quiet faithfulness. John 12, we could say the same thing. These Greeks come, they do meet Jesus, and they have their lives changed. They are brought into a relationship with him, and they leave completely different. That text, sir, we wish to see Jesus, is now one of the most preached on verses when it comes to an evangelistic preaching and sharing the gospel with the lost. This encounter didn't just save those at the time, it has been used by God to save many throughout history and is even now printed right here on the plaque on the front of of the pulpit here. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So the very last thing I see before I start to preach to you all is the words from the Greeks that led to Andrew bringing them to Christ. Extraordinary impact coming through a a quiet, ordinary faithfulness. Andrew brings people to Jesus and he lets Jesus do the rest. An ordinary man with extraordinary impact because he brings people to Jesus. In his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, John MacArthur tells the story of how D.L. Moody became a Christian, how D.L. Moody entered into a relationship with Christ. Moody is a 19th century preacher and evangelist who had just a tremendous impact both in America and in England as well. Tens of thousands of people testified that they came to Christ through Moody's 
uh, ministry, including uh, several folks who went on to become very significant missionaries or, or evangelists themselves. But this extraordinary work that the Lord did through Moody had a very ordinary beginning. It all started with a man called Edward Kimball. You ever heard of him? No one's ever heard of him. At best, he's a footnote in the annals of church history. And yet he's the guy that led the 19-year-old D.L. Moody to Christ. Here's how Kimball remembered it. He says, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started downtown to Holton Shoe Store. This is a, a shoe store in Boston where D.L. Moody apparently worked. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought that maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. That when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was. And when they learned, might taunt Moody and ask if I were trying to make a good boy out of him. While I was pondering over, pondering over it all, I passed the store without noticing it. Then when I found I had gone by the door, I determined to, date, to make a dash for it and have it over at once. Once inside the store, Kimball found Moody stocking shelves. And he continues, I spoke with limping words. I never could remember just what I did say. Something about Christ and his love, that was all. And right there and then, Moody gave his life to Jesus. Kimball brought Moody to Jesus and Jesus did the rest. An ordinary man, timid, um, without great faith even that this would work out well, unsure of what to say, has an extraordinary impact for the kingdom. Or don't just think of illustrations from history. Think of your own life as well. If you are a Christian this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is almost surely because someone brought you to Jesus. Perhaps it was a parent who was faithful in bringing you to the church and to reading you the scriptures and to praying with you and for you. Perhaps it was another relative. Perhaps it was a spouse. Perhaps it was your college roommate. Perhaps it was another friend. Perhaps it was a a colleague or a neighbor. One way or another, everyone who believes in Jesus was brought to him by someone. Of course, we know God doesn't have to work this way, but he just, he he chooses to. Why? Because he loves to include his children in this kingdom work of evangelism. It pleases his heart to use us in, in this way. And as we add this third service this fall that I emailed you all about this week, it's a good time for us to consider what is it that God might be doing through us? Might God be pleased to take what's really ordinary, what's really ordinary, and do something again that is extraordinary? At the very least, we know what he's doing in our hearts. We know that he has drawn near to us in the gospel. We know that he has his whispered grace to our souls. We know that Jesus has become enchanting to us because he is at work. William Wordsworth, the 19th century poet, said, What we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how. Love that life. What we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how. And that's how we feel about Jesus. As we embark on this 
journey to add this service, to create space in order to reach new people, understand that this is not just a, a logistical decision that the session has made in order to free up more space in the parking lot. Important as that is to do. This is a spiritual decision that has been made that we might maintain that outward face of our congregation. That we might be a place that always has an eye on those who are far from God and does all that we can to gather them in and bring them to Jesus. We want to be, I want to be, and I want us to be, a congregation of Andrews where we bring our friends, we bring our neighbors, we bring our elders that whom we have loved, they might love, because first he loved us all. I hope you know, um, with me in general, and uh, here in particular, as we think about this third service, we're not taking ourselves too seriously. We're just seeing if we can bring more people to Jesus. If it works, great. If we figure out a better way, even better. Either way, we'll have a smile on our faces and be glad that we tried. We want to take Jesus more seriously. We want to take ourselves less seriously. Over the next few weeks, of course, we'll be sending more details your way, but it's important that we keep first things first. Yes, we'll we'll tell you about the logistics, and, and I know it's important because DC people are like me, and we're a little OCD about all these things. And so don't worry, we have spreadsheets on nursery and spreadsheets on Sunday school and spreadsheets on children's ministry and student ministry. We've got a thousand spreadsheets and we'll share the summary with you all. And then you will feel well with your soul. Okay? <laughs> That's the way we are. Okay? And it's incurable. So we'll do that. We will. We'll do that. I should say as well, in a sense, some of that's a little underwhelming and that the bottom line is uh, all our existing ministries are continuing apace. There's no, there's no uh, punchline, so to speak. We'll also send you some, some resources and ideas to, to help you uh, reach out like Andrew. But, but as we do all this, we, we want to keep first things first. And we want to remember why it is that we're doing this. We're doing this to create space in order to reach new people so that those who are far from God might be brought to Jesus. Jesus compels us to be about the work that he has given And as we're about this work, we take great encouragement from Andrew. Why? Because he's so normal and he's so ordinary. He shows us that this kind of life change, life change enough to transform a region or an area, happens quietly. This kind of life change happens winsomely. This kind of life change happens behind the scenes through ordinary faithfulness. You bring a family member to Jesus. You offer up the insufficient resources of five loaves and two fish. You invite a seeker to consider Christ. And having brought these things to Jesus, you leave it up to him as to what he does with them. Major moments may come in time, but first he calls us to ordinary faithfulness. Andrew is encouraging because he reminds us that, you know what? You don't have to preach a sermon. You don't have to write a book. You don't even have to march on Washington. You just have to bring people to Jesus. That's the quiet encouragement that comes from Andrew. That as we bring people to Jesus, we will find that what we have loved, others will love. Because we have taught them how. 
You know, with Andrew, we, we don't really... Uh, well, we, we, with Andrew, we, we get a good sense of, of how his story ends. Not really from the scriptures, but uh, his history and tradition are pretty uniform on the fact that Andrew died in a place called Achaia, which is in southern Greece near Athens. One account tells that he uh, led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ. And this governor was really unhappy with this, and he demanded that his wife recant her faith in Jesus, and when she refused, he had Andrew executed. He died in the way that he lived, bringing people to Jesus. That's a good way to go. That's a really good way to go. Some tradition tells that he was crucified on an X-shaped cross, and known as the St. Andrew's Cross, the cross that actually appears on the flag of Scotland. St. Andrew has been the patron saint of Scotland since about the year 750 AD. You see why, little aside, you see why I laugh cynically when I go places and it says, like, the historic First Presbyterian Church of 1820. (laughs) I'm like, that was yesterday in Scotland. We get a sense of how Andrew's story ends, dying as he lived. The story of our congregation is still to be told. The story of our congregation is still being written. We don't yet know how it's going to end. We do know that it's part of God's larger story. And because of that, we move into this next chapter with joy, looking forward to see what it is he will do. My prayer is that he will use the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's something about your word that's disarming. So often when we think of um, the work of evangelism, of bringing people to Christ, it creates um, (laughs) just so much turmoil and so much angst within our hearts, so much nervousness. And yet your word doesn't call us to be some kind of spiritual superhero. Your word doesn't call us to have all the answers. Your word doesn't call us to write a book. Your word calls us to have a very ordinary, normal kind of faithfulness where In the stuff of life, day by day, we follow Christ and are glad to take others with us as we go. And so, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us through uh, the life and example of of Andrew. Because his story is a story of of your grace. Taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. And that's, Lord, what we ask for as well. We ask for grace. That you would do uh, an amazing thing in our midst. That those who are far from you will continue to be brought near through the blood of Christ and that we would have the great joy, the great privilege, the great fun and excitement of watching what you do as we bring people to you. Father, what we have loved, may others love. Would you give us the grace to teach them how? We ask in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen.